I'm told we're having some technical difficulty with the slides, so they may not be up there for a few minutes, and I'll just add to that. Uh, I might as well pile on. Some of the verses that you see up there when they do get up there this morning could be wrong. <laughs> we just want to remind you what it was like in the barn. That's really what we're trying to do this morning. <laughs> No, I made some last-minute changes uh, in verses and, and realized as I was driving over this morning that I didn't send those to John, and so it'll be one or two things, maybe one or two verses missing. So if you look up there and go, where's the verse? Where's the verse? Just write it down. <laughs> that works, too. Remember when we used to write? I remember those days. Beautiful days. Revelation chapter 15. Let me start in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Down in verse 5, after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels, who had the seven plagues, came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." finished. Father, finish what you started and help us to understand where we are in that process. By your spirit again, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we started the bridge in 2003. Many of you were here at that time, which thrills me. At that time, Cheryl and I sold our house in Anacortes. We felt like, you know, if we're going to start a church on Whidbey Island, we need to be on Whidbey Island, even though the desire wasn't just to be a Whidbey Island church, but it, you know, to anyone who wanted to come, whether from Fidalgo or Whidbey or anywhere else. But we felt like we need to be where it's happening, and so we sold our house with no idea what we were going to do. We ended up, over the first 15 months that the bridge was a fellowship, we moved five times. And we stayed at friends' homes, and we rented a house, and we stayed, you know, just all over the place. It was quite a journey. It was a lot of fun. Um, At that time, we ended up buying land, and we started a building project. See, if you want to take the stress meter right up to the top, start a church and build a house all at the same time. Well, in the building process, um, we were trying to figure out, I'd never done this before. I will never do it again. But trying to figure out, how do you do this? How do you build a house? And, and Nicolo Bruno was our builder, and he did a fantastic job. But we're looking down budgets and trying to figure things out, and the home loan to, to finish the project, and how is this going to work? And, and in this uh, project that, that we were working on, we realized we've got to cut corners. We've got to save some money here. And one of the places that we felt like we could save money was uh, if we just did the finishing work ourselves. Because I'm looking down the list, and it's at the very end, I'm like, I can do that. I got it, no problem. We had no idea what we were talking about. Not even a clue. Thank God we ended up with more than 60 people who helped us finish that house, or we never would have gotten done. And if you were here, thank you. If, if you did, you know, Mike, you helped me with the tiling. Thank you so much. I learned how to tile. It was amazing. I'd never done that before. We didn't have any idea that trim and, and tile and fixture and flooring and paint, all this. I just thought, paint, we'll just finish up. The house is still not finished. I mean, you can go looking around, especially the trim. It's just it's kind of scary when you look at it. We've got a lot of, you know, just over the years, we've been in that house now almost 14 years, and we've just been slowly uh, finishing You never want to do that. You never want to move into a house unfinished. Well, we did. I'll tell you what. I am so thankful that when all is said and done, I won't be left unfinished. That the Lord will finish what He started. And He will finish what He started in you. Not because you're so brilliant or amazing or you know how to do finishing work. You don't. But He does. And He will finish 
Hebrews 12, verse 1, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. The word finishing there, Jesus is the teleotane. Teleotain comes from the word teleos, which is the word finish or complete or perfect in the Bible. Jesus is the teleotain. He's the finisher. He gets us across the line. He does what needs to be done. And you know, I was thinking about this this week and I realized there are 66 books in the Bible. And one revelation. (laughs) The revelation of Jesus Christ. I've been repeating that over and over as we've been in this series. Because there are 66 books, but there is one revelation. The revelation is Jesus. And we're always asking the question, what do the scriptures teach us of Jesus? What do the scriptures tell us of Jesus? Because he is the teleotain. He's the finisher. The reason this is so immediately significant, that is the person of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus, is this: without Jesus, we would never get finished. We would be six, never arriving at seven. Like Antichrist. Like the 666 who never gets there because he doesn't know Jesus, does not trust Jesus. We will never know complete fulfillment. We will never know contentment, not in the fullest sense. We will not know satisfaction and certainly not perfection without knowing Jesus. And sometimes I wonder how we Christians still miss that. What do you mean? I believe in Jesus. I I know you do. So do I. But I think sometimes we work awfully hard when he's the one doing the finishing work. And we forget that He is the one who brings the fullness. The fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19, Paul says, The love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, he says, I want you to know this, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Filled to the fullness, or fulfilled. And that's the promise of Jesus. But this only comes and will only come through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the teleotain. He is what we might call the finishing carpenter. He's the one who comes in and does all the finishing work. He said in Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And my friends, Jesus Christ always finishes what he starts. Always. He never leaves a task. He never leaves a person Unfinished. Which is why Paul said, Philippians 1 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You may have noticed when we were reading in Revelation 15 that the word finished is used twice. It's used in the first verse and it's used in the last verse. You may also notice in the first verse that the word um, end is used or the last. And we've come to that here in Revelation chapter 15. What's interesting is we don't often think of finishing work as destructive. But in Revelation 15, it is. And we head into the finishing work of God with this world, which is a destructive work. Look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, the eschatos, where we get the word eschatology. Because in them, the wrath of God is finished. Teleos. Jesus is the finisher, the teleotain. Okay, so it's the same root word there. We've come to the end. We've come to the eschatos, the last, the last of the plagues, the the last of the destructive work, which is a finishing work in the book of Revelation and in this teaching of the coming end times. Now, we are in the end times, but this is the end of the end, the final seven years. In fact, Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 77s have been decreed for your people, Israel, and the holy city, Jerusalem. And the angel, Gabriel, speaks to Daniel. He says, 77s have been decreed to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, 
to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. All of this needs to be finished. All must be accomplished. And in the final seven, the final seven year period, what you understand now is the tribulation. It's going to get done. It will be finished. And we've come now in chapter 15 to the precipice of the end of the final seven. When we launch into chapter 16, which we will when I get back, Lord willing, when we launch into that chapter, we are in the final three and a half years, the great tribulation, the final finishing work of God. But you know, the seven plagues are given to seven angels. These, these plagues provide the finishing work. In these plagues, the wrath is finished by the teleotane, the, the finisher. And the finishing work is intense. Going back and thinking it through, we've seen six or, or seven sealed judgments. Jesus breaking off the seals. And with those sealed judgments, we begin to see destruction literally happening on the earth, like tearing down the walls, pulling down, framing this rotted, taking it almost, you might say, back down to the foundation. He begins the work, seven sealed judgments. And then seven angels emerge, given seven trumpets. And we read of the seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8 through 11. Now seven angels come on with the seven finishing plagues. I don't need to remind you, but I will. The seven is the number of completion of a finished work in the Bible. And the sevenfold design of complete and finishing judgment for sin was actually spoken of long ago. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21. The Lord said, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sin. Seven times. Seventy times seven. Seventy sevens. The final seven I will increase the plague sevenfold. And notice these angels are given seven plagues, one given to each angel in verse 1. The word plague can mean stripe, it can mean wound, blow, affliction, calamity. But it's all the consequence of God's awesome finishing wrath. And we, we cannot slide back from that or soften that message. This is the ultimate finishing work of the wrath of God poured out, and we will see it in full force. Chapter 16 through 19. There are two kinds of wrath in the New Testament. Two words that are used for it. The first word is orge. Orge, it's sometimes translated anger. And you need to note this orge is anger from a settled position. Anger from a settled position. That is decided upon anger that is thoughtful anger that is processed anger anger from a settled position like jesus clearing the temple at the beginning and at the end of his ministry jesus cleared the temple in jerusalem it was anger from a settled position it was determined it was measured he was not flying off the handle he knew exactly what he was doing which i think makes makes the stories of the clearing of the temple all the more profound Because Jesus didn't go in there and lose it. Jesus went in with precise action and behavior based on prayerful thought. How do you know that, Rick? Well, if you read Mark's account of the clearing of the temple, Jesus goes in and he looks at everything going on in the temple, and then he goes and he spends the night in Bethany, and then he comes back the next day and clears the temple. He knew what he was doing. He had orge. He had a righteous anger from a settled position. It's Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum. And he's looking around and he knows he's being watched by the Pharisees. And so he asked him a very simple question. There's a man there in the synagogue who has a shriveled hand, useless, unable to use it at all. And, and he's standing there and this man is obviously suffering for it. So Jesus asked a simple question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? Mark chapter 3 verse 4. But they kept silent. They, they wouldn't answer. And it says in Mark 3, 5, after looking it around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
and he stretched it out and the hand was restored. And then Jesus got in trouble for healing on the Sabbath. That anger, he looked around at the Pharisees in the synagogue that day with anger, but it wasn't fly off the handle, lose it anger. It was anger from a settled position. He was angry with them because they knew better. Last week, I, uh, I said that if you are a Christian and you believe in psychics, you're an idiot. I got an email about that saying, I'm not sure Jesus would use that word. <laughs> no, I think he used phrases like, twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. I didn't go that far. Why would you use a word like idiot? What if you offend somebody? And I I responded to that. And it was a dear friend who brought this up. And he was right to bring it up and to try and keep me sensitive because I can lose that pretty quickly. But why would you use the word idiot? Do you know the word idiot was in my notes? You know why? Orge. It was a settled anger. I had thought about what I was saying. Now, if someone who's a believer in Jesus Christ believes in psychics and wants to come up and tell me that they're not an idiot, I will explain why. <laughs> and I, I share with my friend, you know, I meant that as a slap in the face. I meant it as a cold splash of water, a wake up. Wait a minute, what am I doing? Yeah, this is dumb. Sometimes we need that. Jesus didn't show this sudden anger. He showed us a settled anger, whether in the synagogue or in the temple. It was a settled anger because Jesus knew the hearts of the Pharisees. He knew the hearts of the Jewish leaders. And by the way, it was religious people. It was in that day, we could say Christian leaders that he called sons of hell. He was grieved because he knew their hearts and it grieved his heart. And that kind of anger has portrayed God's wrath all along. That settled anger. That watching the things that we do. The stupid things that we do. And He's angry about it. It hurts His heart because we're hurting our hearts. And He knows that. So there's a settled, measured, righteous anger. And by the way, the first time we see, first four times we see the word wrath in the Revelation, it's that kind of anger. It's orge. It's settled, measured anger. It's in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. And chapter 11, verse 18, we see the word four times from a settled position. And all four times it's speaking of, get this, the wrath of the Lamb. It is the settled anger of the Lamb. And that's usually what we see in the Lord. When we get to chapter 15, it's different. This is no longer settled anger. It's still righteous. It's still perfect. It is still true. But now the word is no longer orge, settled anger. It's thumos, which means a flash or fury of anger. Think of thermonuclear war. Thumos. This is explosive anger. The first four times in Revelation, it is a settled anger from a righteous position. The last seven times, note that, seven times we see the word wrath from here to the end of Revelation. And it is thumos, and it is the furious, flashing wrath of God. He's had enough. We've come to the end. And in fact, that's why I think, personally, in verse 2 it says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. We've seen the sea of glass. We talked about this Wednesday night. We saw the sea of glass back in chapter 4. But it wasn't mixed with fire then. It is now. I believe because God's anger is now flashing across the sea of glass. It's about to explode in fiery fury on a world, and get this, on a world that is filled with people who repeatedly consistently reject or neglect the love of God. How long must a creator extend his hand only to have it battered away by his creation? Is a hundred years long enough to be patient? A thousand years? Six thousand years? What if that same creator extended his hands on the cross piece called the patibulum of a man-made cross. Would that be enough? For people to come to faith in him, to trust him, to receive the love that he's offering, how far does God have to go? How long must God wait? 
And the Bible tells us that those who repeatedly, consistently reject or neglect the love of God already have wrath from a settled position on them. They already have the wrath of God. Settled. Not explosive. It is the flash of wrath that is coming. But Jesus said in John 3.18, He who believes in Him is not judged. Amen. And note, note how difficult that is. You know, that standard. He who believes in Him is not judged. Not he who attends every church potluck. Not he who is involved in every church ministry. Not he who has given over his life to hard work and labor for the sake of the gospel. He who believes in Him is not judged. And Jesus says, however, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That settled anger is already on the person who refuses to believe. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God, the orge, the settled anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the settled wrath of God is already felt. It's already on the world. Read through Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. Just read that passage. Not right now. We have other things to talk about. But check that out because it tells us separate times, three, I believe, separate times that God gave them over to the consequence of their rejection of Him. That's the settled anger. You want to reject me? I will give you over to your life, to your sin. To your rebellion, to your choices. I will give you over to your broken hearts. Not what he wants. But the settled anger says, if you will reject me, I will give you over to your broken lives, to your broken bodies. The settled anger of God allows the sin in this world to have its day. That's why there's evil, that's why there's wickedness, that's why there's pain in the world right now, is God's settled anger is allowing sin to have its way. And allowing those who would choose sin over Him to have the full consequence, or at least the, the, the limited, really, the limited consequence of their sin at that time. But that's anger from, anger from a settled position. Here's the warning. It will become a flash of fury in the finishing work of God. And it should cause it should it should cause such great fear in the world. Not the holy reverent fear that we talked about last week, that deep, rich, profound fear of God that comes in worship of him. That comes at times when we're studying, when we're reading the scriptures, when we're in prayer and we sense the presence of God and there is a fear that descends, but it is a rich fear. It's a good fear. It's a holy, reverent fear. And we went over that last week. That's not the fear I'm talking about. The fear of God here should be terrifying. Recognizing the flash of anger that is coming. Not the holy fear, but Hebrews 10.27 says, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. You see, when the world falls headlong into the final three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, God's wrath is going to flash. Thumos. Fiery, flashing anger. And the seven angels are given seven bowls. Look at verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Interesting. First of all, he says after these things, so meta tauto, we're on the way again. We're moving forward now, once again. I told you months ago, whenever it was that we started this study, that when you see after these things, that Greek phrase meta tauto moves us to the next thing. So John is now moving us to the next thing. This is the after these things. This is now heading into this great tribulation period. After these things I looked, and the temple, naos, of the tabernacle, skene, of the testimony, marchureo, in heaven, Uranos was opened. It's very descriptive. It's interesting to me. This heavenly scene, and note that, this is a heavenly scene, not an earthly scene. The angels 
that we're seeing are going to come out of this heavenly temple. So we're looking at a heavenly scene. Chapter 14, it was all earthly. You may also recall, we've been talking about, you go back and forth between visions of what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven as you study through Revelation. Well, right now in chapter 15, we are in heaven. John is seeing a heavenly scene, at least at the beginning here. And back in chapter 11, what's interesting is this is a heavenly scene of the heavenly temple. And in chapter 11, we saw several words for temple. We did a whole study on the measure of a temple. And there are a number of words used throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. We kind of talked through all those words, what those words meant, how those words were used. You only need to remember one word right here. When he says, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open, you need to remember the word temple Temple is naos. Why do I need to remember that? It's very specific. The naos speaks of, it can be translated shrine, but it is specifically the holy place and the holy of holies. That's the naos. If you were to look at Herod's temple in the first century, or go back to Solomon's temple, uh, Six, seven hundred years before that. And what you would see is the outer court, and you see the walls and everything, but the, the primary part, the inner part of the temple, you'd have to go inside to the holy place, and then the holy holies, that is the naos, not the entire complex. And so right here he says the temple, naos, of the tabernacle, skene, of the testimony, marchereo, which is where we get the word. Martyr in heaven. And I read that and it it strikes me because it's so specific. The only other time we even see the two words temple and tabernacle combined in the New Testament refers to the heavenly temple. It's back in chapter 7, verse 15, which says, For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple, naos. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle, which is the word skene, will spread his tabernacle over them. That's the only time in the Bible, outside of chapter 15, where we even see temple and tabernacle in the same sentence. But now in chapter 15, he ties it together and calls it the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. It's a very specific rendering, a very specific picture. John is clear on what he's seeing and wants us to be clear as well. Why? Why in this place is John being so precise? And I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. I'm not going to make you wait till Wednesday night. Because I won't be here. So I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But hold that thought. It's a very explicit description of the temple, of the tabernacle, of the testimony. But now seven angels emerge from this heavenly temple. Verse 6. Seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Linen-clad, golden-sashed angels. These are angels. This is not the church. And by the way, in chapter 19, it's the church, not angels. You will note when we get to chapter 19, a group of people who are dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. Well, so are these angels. How do you know it's not the same people? Well, this group, these seven angels, for one thing, it's only seven angels. For another thing, they're golden sashed. For another thing, they're coming out of the temple of God in heaven. And it's very specific who they are. Well, why are they linen clad and wearing golden sashes? Linen in the Bible speaks of righteous activity. Linen is righteous activity. Now, I'm not saying they weren't wearing linen. They were wearing linen. John saw them wearing linen in this vision. But it speaks. It paints a picture for us. And the first to wear linen in the Bible, first mention of the word linen, linen you've got to go all the way back to Genesis 41-42. And Joseph, Joseph was wearing linen. Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph did righteous things, lived by righteous behavior and righteous action. Linen is a picture of the righteous activity of those who wear it. The priests of Levi, of Israel, wore holy linen garments. Leviticus 6 verse 10, Leviticus 16 verse 4. They wore linen. That was the basic garb of a priest. In his birth, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know what that was? Linen. Linen strips. In his death, Jesus was wrapped 
again in linen. Interesting, in birth and in death. And you Bible students know, as I just mentioned, there's another group of people who wear linen, and that's the saints in Revelation 19, verse 8, says it was given to her, the bride, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Linen speaks of righteous activity. Those who wear linen speak of those who are acting in righteousness for the Lord. But they're also wearing golden sashes. And golden sashes indicate purity. Gold is the picture of purity in the scriptures, especially gold that has gone through the fire, gold that is, that is smelted, gold that is purified, speaks of purity. Malachi chapter 3 verse 3 tells us that. So what we see as these seven angels emerge from the temple is a righteous, purifying, priestly work that they have been given. They are set to this. And they come straight out of the heavenly holy place. So also, they're angels with divine authority. This speaks of where the authority comes from. They're coming straight out of the throne. Straight out of the the temple of the tabernacle in heaven to carry out God's wrath. Here they come, verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures, the cherubim around the throne, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, if your Bible says vials, that's probably not the best translation, although the Greek word is fialis, and fialis is where we get the word vial in the English, but fialis doesn't describe, you know, uh, one of those little vials that you'll see in, in medicine. doesn't describe uh, pouring vessels that are, that are like, uh, you know, pitchers. A vial describes, or fialis, was a broad, shallow bowl. It's important to understand that. Typically, these broad, shallow... So think of a golden bowl that that you'd probably need to use two hands even to carry because it's going to be very shallow and very wide. Not a good idea, by the way, to use this kind of bowl for cereal. (laughs) Because between the kitchen and the couch, you're getting Fruit Loops all over everything. You know, they're spilling out. It's a broad, shallow bowl used for ceremonial libations and drink offerings. and, And you could tip it out quickly understand that these wide shallow bowls fit right in with God's flashing anger because what's poured out is poured out fast it comes out quick it doesn't take a long time it's rapid fire we're talking about and, and there are those who suggest that the bowl judgments come along so fast they don't even span three and a half years that the bold judgments themselves within the great tribulation in the last three and a half years come out so fast it may be months or some even say days. When we get to chapter 16, it could be one right after the other hitting the earth, hitting the earth as these bowls are poured out quickly. But like the seven angels' sashes, these bowls are, these bowls are golden as well because it speaks of purification. This is a purifying work that's going on. Don't think only of the wrath of God as Him venting the heat of His holy anger. It is that. It is that. It is a vent of holy, righteous anger. God hates what sin has done to this world. God hates what sin has done to your life and to mine. Nobody hates injustice like God does. Nobody hates cruelty or abuse or violence or exploitation more than God hates these things. All of the evils and wickedness and hurts and pains of the world that we see today. This is God judging this. Judging these things. But it's not just that anger. The outpouring of these golden bowls of wrath is a flashing judgment, yes, but it is the purifying work of a righteous God. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10 says, Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. There is a purging that takes place. Tragically, by this point in the world's history, the purging on earth isn't going to purge anybody to eternal life. Malachi chapter 3 verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. 
Israel has been going through a purification process for 2,000 years. And will end up finally purified. As the Lord says, and I, I've shared this standing up on Mount Megiddo, looking out over the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Armageddon. We've actually looked at this passage in the past. We may again this next trip, but Zechariah 13 verse 8 says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested and they will call on me and I will answer them and I will say, these are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. And it's talking about Israel. Zechariah is prophesying right there that what's going to happen in these three and a half years of tribulation, or seven years of tribulation, the last three and a half of the great tribulation, what's going to take place is that among the Jewish people, get this, two-thirds will perish. I think the Holocaust was bad. Two-thirds of the Jewish people on earth today will not make it to the end of the tribulation. Now, we can safely have that conversation inside a little church building where we're not surrounded by Jewish friends. Can you imagine having this conversation and looking at this passage while Roni, the tour guide, is standing there? Two-thirds of your people are going down, man. How do you have that conversation? I've actually had that conversation with Roni. And I'll tell you how you have the conversation. By this point in the tribulation, by the midpoint, two-thirds of all humanity is already gone. It's not just Israel, folks. Two-thirds of the world's population is decimated when you hit the midpoint before you get to the bold judgments. And there is more to come. If you run the numbers, God is absolutely just and fair in terms of His judgment. And beyond that, the purification of of Daniel and Malachi and Zechariah that I just read to you, that's all about the people of Israel. That's all about a purifying process to bring His people, His chosen people, back to Him, in love with Him, through Jesus to Him. And it's going to work and it's going to happen. But there's a larger issue going on here, not just the purification of Israel, but this is a purifying judgment of planet Earth. And in case anybody's wondering, it's a completely righteous judgment, and you're going to sing that song. Because Revelation 19, I'll just read it to you. In verse 1, John says, After these things I I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! They'll say for a second time, verse 3, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Speaking of the judgment of, well, of the great whore Babylon. And then in verse 4, hallelujah again. And then in verse 6, I saw something like a voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. We will be that chorus. That's amazing to me. I love reading quotes of myself in the Bible. That I'm saying, Hallelujah, Lord, righteous and true are your judgments, because we will know this to be true. There will not be a single person on that day standing before God going, I'm not sure if that's totally fair. We'll all know. Every bowl judgment is perfectly designed as a pure and righteous response to the impurity of sin. Think about it this way. You look at a a forest with dead, dead, dry underbrush. What ends up happening? Forest fire. We're out here trying to fight forest fires, but what we discover, the reality is, is when there is a natural forest fire, the forest needed to burn. How can you say that? Because it needed to burn out so that fresh growth could come. That's kind of how God set things up. That's why you see a lightning storm will cause a horrible forest fire and we think, oh, the poor trees. And the Lord set up the earth to be rejuvenating so that there could be a purification, a cleansing out, and then a regrowth. Or a house with black mold. What do you do with that? 
Insurance companies don't want to touch it because it's such an expensive problem. Black mold gets into the walls. You're tearing out drywall. You're going right down to the frame. You may even have to replace part of the frame. Sometimes it's, it's growing so fast and it's so bad there's nothing you can do but tear it down. Like a meth lab. Which is probably a good comparison to this world right now. This world is a big fat meth lab. At least that's what sin is doing. You could take a beautiful home, get some people in there who create and develop a little meth lab and they start developing the drug. The chemical gets into the floors, it gets into the walls, it gets into the ceiling. And what ends up happening is the place has to either be completely cleansed or just torn down. The Ebola virus is a good example. Do you know the Ebola virus can live in a corpse for over a week after it's dead? Well, the corpse is already dead, so I guess the corpse doesn't... Anyway, but after a victim of Ebola dies, the virus can live in the corpse for a good week, which is why they figured out in Liberia the Ebola virus was exploding because the Liberian practice of burial was to wash the body and dress the body and kiss the person who had died. We talked about kissing a corpse this morning at church. (laughs) They did this in Liberia until they figured out this virus is still present. Now you know what they do? They cremate the bodies. If someone dies of Ebola, they burn the body. There's got to be a purification. Do not be deceived. Galatians 6 verse 7. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Sow to the Spirit now. Believe in Jesus now. Trust in Him now. And you will reap eternal life. Reject Him. Neglect Him. Rebel against Him. And there is no other alternative but a purification that may take you down completely to nothing as the bold judgments are poured out. Verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Finished. And we've seen this emulated twice before. This verse, verse 8, you you look back, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, which would be the holy place and the holy of holies. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then you Bible students, you know, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place at the building of Solomon's temple, the first Jewish temple in Jerusalem, the priests came out of the holy place and the cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Same thing's happening right here in verse 8. The glory of the Lord fills the house. That deep, Profound, awesome presence of God. Now I told you I think there's a reason that John is so specific back in verse 5 in describing the heavenly temple. Calling it again the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And here in verse 8 we see again the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And it may be it's possible that God is just so angry here that the rest of the heaven needs to get out of the room. Like Anna Marie once told me when after she first came home in the first year she remembered a time that, that I got angry with Hayden. And you need to understand when we adopted our kids we were very... We were very decided on any kind of discipline on how we did punishment. We were, we were careful. We were very thoughtful about it. Not so with our biological kids. It was just, you know. <laughs> Anna Marie remembers a time when I was angry with Hayden, and I, I raised my voice. I was shouting at him, and she left the room. And she told me later, I didn't like when you raised your voice. It, it may, I left. I went as far away from the sound of your voice as possible when you were angry. Maybe that's what's going on here. You know, it's, it's the flashing fury of God's anger and he fills up the temple and everybody's like, I'm not going in there. Dad's mad. Stay out. 
But that doesn't explain why in verse 5 it's such a lengthy, explicit description. And I think what's happening here is that John is clarifying which temple he's talking about. What do you mean? Well, go back to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Turn back there real quick. John says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Which temple is that? It's the temple in Jerusalem. Right? Measure the temple, John. How do we know it's the temple in Jerusalem? Because the outside of it has been given to the Gentiles to tread it for 42 months. So we know this is the temple rebuilt in the tribulation in Jerusalem on the earth. That third temple, the tribulate, we called it the tribulation temple, although it's still a temple dedicated to God. Therefore, still God's temple. While it stands in the tribulation, but Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2 tells us very specifically it's only the naos. It's only that inner sanctuary. Back in chapter 15, I suggest to you that verse 8 now speaks not of the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven, but of its counterpart on the earth in Jerusalem. And I think that's significant. Now, this is, this is my opinion. I can't prove it one way or the other. But what this would mean is that as before even the bold judgments begin to get poured out onto the earth, as the fiery, furious anger of God is flashing in the heavens, and the angels come out of the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven, that on earth, suddenly, the earthly temple in Jerusalem fills with the smoke of His glory. And if that's what's taking place here, recognize that all are immediately driven out of that temple. Antichrist. The false prophet. And their deliberate drive to be deified, they are pushed out. They're done. And just imagine... No one can enter because of the weight of His glory, His power, His presence. He smokes out the abomination of desolation. And He begins then from the heavens to rain down fiery fury, flashing judgment on the earth, the likes of which the world has never seen. Either way, whether it's the heavenly temple that now fills with the smoke of His glory as He's gearing up for the outpouring of wrath, Or, as he's gearing up for that outpouring in heaven, it's the earthly temple that suddenly fills with the smoke of his glory. And that's what I'm leaning toward. That's what I think. I could be wrong. But either way, here's the point. In heaven or on earth, the temple is closed for business. The entrance to mercy is shut. The way to grace is is inaccessible. The temple is closed until the wrath of God is finished. And I point that out to say, how different is that than right now? Then, that's it. No one's coming in. The door is shut. Now, the veil is torn. The way is clear. It is wide open. Then, No more mercy. It's over. It's finished. It's done. Here comes judgment. Now, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We are in a time of immense grace that our world doesn't even comprehend and it's such a simple, beautiful thing. Grace and mercy is available to any person. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It doesn't matter how heinous the crime or horrible the sin or messed up the life. It doesn't matter how how much carnage even there is behind you. That right now we are in an age of grace and mercy. Therefore, Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we draw near to the temple of God in confidence? We do so through Jesus Christ. We follow Jesus right in. 
We can go in, we can come out, we come before the Lord. Every time you pray, you're coming to the throne of mercy, the throne of grace. You're coming right into the Holy of Holies with Jesus Christ, your intercessor. The way is not barred. And yet then, the presence and the power and the perfection and the glory of God is so great, you cannot, you cannot get past it. Some people say, well, I've got all the time in the world. You know what my answer is to that? You do. You do. You have all the time in the world. How much time do you think that is? So that's where the issue is. I've got my whole life before me. Yeah, and if you step off a curb and get hit by a bus today, your whole life's not that long. Well, I've got all the rest of time before. we got years before this is going to happen. Really? How do you know? Are you so sure? The world is running out of time. There is fast approaching a day when the way to mercy will suddenly be impassable by the presence of the Spirit of God. God never calls a thing finished until it is. And He will finish what He started. But here's the good news. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake, alive, or asleep, dead, we will live together with Him. And as we began, Jesus is the master carpenter. He's the master finisher. The finishing work of Christ in you, it is completely different than the finishing flash of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is quickly poured out on a people who repeatedly and consistently reject or neglect God's love. The finishing work of Christ is not quick. It's not fast. He finishes with wrath quickly. But with grace... He's going to take your entire life to do it. However long that may be, He is a slow mover in the work of sanctification. Jesus said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish, to finish His work. He prayed in John 17.4, Father, I glorified You on the earth having finished the work which You have given me to do. And on the cross, You know, He said, John 19.30, It is finished to die. It's done. So please don't miss this connection. When Jesus cried, It is finished, it was. It was finished before You were born. It was finished before you chose Him, before your first victory, before your most recent failure, finished. The finishing work of Christ. But, but, (laughs) He's also the finishing carpenter who is now doing His most intricate, delicate finishing work in your life with perfect craftsmanship. It's finished. Your salvation is done. It's paid for in full. The full wrath of God poured out on Jesus at the cross. Finished. And now He's finishing us. Oh, not like Revelation 15. But He's doing the delicate work. The intricate design. Guess who's not the finisher? You. You are not the finisher. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying you're not going to get the job done. He will. I will not finish me. I know Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 7. Yes, he did finish the course. But he's not the one who finished the course. Huh? He finished the course, but he didn't do the finishing work. If you could get a mental picture of this, Paul did not run across the finishing line. Jesus ran across the finishing line, and Paul was on his back. He does the finishing work. This is the work, Jesus says, of God. John 6, 29, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work. That's our work. That's our part in the whole deal. And then He does the finishing work. Again, Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is the author and the teleotain. 
the finisher of faith. Now, just a couple more things here. What does this mean for you and me practically? And I'm talking to Christians now. And if you're not a Christian, you need to look at Revelation 15 and recognize what's coming. And understand the depth of the love of God that you right now can come to Him by faith in the grace of Jesus. Just pray for forgiveness. Just come to the Lord. And the way is open. And there's not a a litmus test and there's not an exam that you have to take and there's not any amount of knowledge or understanding you have to have. You just say, I believe in Jesus and He begins the finishing work. But your salvation is finished. Christians, practically, what I'm saying to you this morning is because Jesus is the finisher, don't focus on the finishing work. Focus on the finisher. If I focus on the finishing work, it's going to wipe me out. It's going to wear me out. It's going to burn me out. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be upset with all of you. (laughs) And you with me. Contentions and problems and conflicts happen in church when we're trying to do the finishing work. And we've been swinging the hammer all day long and we're hot and we're thirsty and we're dry and we're sweating and we're angry and frustrating. We've hit our thumb one too many times and someone comes in and tells us there's a better way to do it. And I'm sorry, but that's not how to do it. And we get upset and tired. Man, if I focus on the finisher, then I understand the finishing work is that of Jesus Christ. He's the finisher, not the fatiguer. He, he doesn't get you down. He, he lifts you up. I've had this conversation from time to time, and so probably it's good for us just to all have it right here, that if the work of God in this church fellowship is wearing you out, stop. Take a break. Rest. What are you working so hard for? If showing up at every church activity is just burning you out, don't show up. Well, Rick, be careful. People might stop coming. <laughs> If it's wearing you down, something's wrong, folks. It's not Jesus. He builds us up. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 says, His works were finished from the foundation of the world. It was a done deal. Hebrews 4, verse 10, The one who has entered His rest has Himself also rested from His works as God did from His. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. He's the finisher, not you. Not me. He will get it done. And this came to such a head for me yesterday. It was a beautiful day yesterday. I got to be outside at all. It was just gorgeous. It was wonderful. But that's not why it was a beautiful day for me. I got two just great teachings yesterday. The first one was here at our men's breakfast. We had like 50 guys show up and it was a blast. It was really cool to all be in the foyer there eating bacon. And Hunter Bankhart was our speaker. And those of you guys who were there, he he did a fantastic job. Hunter's Navy. Hunter's a commander of uh, VAQ-138 on the base. Hunter's a dear friend. I've known Hunter now since we started the bridge. Actually, before the bridge. I knew him a couple years before we started the bridge. And he and his family, as as all of you naval personnel, he's been here and then he's been there and he's been back here and then he's been there and now he's back here and and he may be there again. I don't know. We're all going to be in the same place in heaven, so praise God for that. But Hunter began to share, and as he's, he's talking, I'm watching this guy who I knew, you know, 17, 18 years ago. And I'm hearing his heart. And if you know Hunter, he's a driven guy. I mean, this guy's a workhorse. And he, I mean, you, you never say never, you never say enough to Hunter because he's just going, 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 going. And yet, as I sat there listening to him yesterday, I recognized in him, this is someone who understands that Jesus is the finisher. Why do you say that? Well, you also know that Hunter has a son who has been struggling with epilepsy. He's the the young man running around in a helmet on Sundays for the last couple of years, been two years. By the way, uh, his son, on Becky's birthday, Hunter's wife Becky, on her birthday, March the 6th, I believe it was, he didn't have a single seizure. I think the next day he had one. He hadn't had one since. 
we think that it's over. And that's what we're praying. That this is over. But here's a man who has worked for the Navy. He's a commander. I mean, he, he's been, he's got all of these people to take care of. And then he's got his wife and his children at home. And I, I watch him and I've watched him over the years and we'll have coffee together and talk about life. And, and Hunter's just, he, he, he understands this. He might disagree with me, but I think I see this in him. You don't worry about finishing. You leave that to Jesus. What you do in the meantime, just live with Jesus. Just live with Jesus. He'll get it done. So that was the first teaching that I got, just watching Hunter and realizing, man, whether you're a workhorse, some of you are. Some of you naturally are just type A to the hilt, and you can't get enough, and you can't stop, and where there's not stress, you've got to create stress, because that's just how you're happy. Good for you. That's not me. I was created for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> But you know what? We can compare and look at each other and go, that guy's going so fast, i got to go faster. No, you don't. No, you don't. Look at Jesus. What's He doing in your life? What's He doing with you? You keep your eyes on Him. That's how you live. The second thing, we, we left the men's breakfast and we went over to Kathy Pittis' mother's funeral. Hisako Rooney. Many, some of you know Hisako. Some of you knew Hisako. Here's a, a woman... Who we? I sat there just. I just basked in it uh, at the memorial service. What a sweet, remarkable, quiet, gentle follower of Jesus Christ Hisako is. What was so precious to me was there were two words, and, and Russ shared this yesterday, that described her life probably better than anything else: practicing kindness. Practicing kindness. And in the simplicity of, of listening to all that was shared about her, I, I just sat there marveling, thinking, this is it. This is a woman who had her eyes on the finisher, not on the finishing work. She didn't have her sleeves up, rolled up, working her fingers to the bone, nose to the grindstone, got to get it done, got to make myself righteous, got to pull it all together. That wasn't her. She loved Jesus and she loved her family. She loved her church friends over Anacortes First Baptist. She was involved in different things in the community. And apparently she drove really fast. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm thinking about the contrast between these, these two marvelous people and how both seem to grasp the concept that we keep our eyes on Jesus and not on the work that we do. So what I'm saying to you this morning, I'll finish up here, my friends, be encouraged. That the sanctifying work of Christ isn't a flash in the pan or the bowl. It takes a lifetime. And He's working in you. And He's working in me. And He is the finisher. And He will get it done. And for my part, I'm just going to keep trusting on Him to do it. Lord, we ask You to finish what You started in us. And we ask You, Lord, for the patience to wait for You to finish. We ask for the restfulness of trusting that You are moving and working in our lives. And Father, I pray that You will remove the stress and the strain that I, I see, unfortunately, in a lot of Christians where we're working so hard to be the people we think You want us to be rather than just being Your children. And I pray that You would give us, Lord, give us the diligence to enter Your rest. To rest in You. And to trust in You. And to cease striving and know that You are God. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and in the meantime, just to live these lives that You've given us. Lord, I, I think about Paul even saying, quietly working with our hands. Not a big deal. Not being... You know, the, the, the measure of our success is not how visible we become on this planet. Lord, the measure of our success has already been has already been measured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so thank You, Lord, for that finishing work. And thank You for what You are finishing in us here and now today. Help us to walk in that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand together. Again, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, 
It's the best, it's the easiest, and the most life-changing decision you'll ever make. You just accept Jesus as Lord. And then you start keeping your eyes on Him, and looking at Him, and reading about Him, and praying to Him, and walking with Him. And He does everything else that needs to be done. That's the offer before us. The alternative God has warned about for 6,000 years. So I invite you to come this morning and to trust Jesus perhaps for the first time. If you've trusted Jesus but you're striving and you've been striving in your Christian life, man, you need to let that stuff go and refocus your eyes on Him. So I invite you to come and, and pray about that. If you've got something else going on in your life that you need to pray about, let's do that. But won't you come if you have a need? Come while we sing this song. In the passion of your